morning church family. Um, wow. Had a hard time sleeping last night. I don't know how many hours I got, but uh, last week we got to preach on Christ, the head of the church, and now we get to preach on his bride, the church. And I think this is such a critical sermon. And so today we're talking about the body of Christ. We're going to be out of Ephesians again. We're out of Ephesians chapter 1 last week. We're just got to fast forward a little bit to Ephesians chapter 4. But before I get there, have you ever heard this? Okay, maybe from a friend or family member. I am a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't believe in the church. I read the Bible. I'm okay. I pray to God. I have a relationship with him. I listen to sermons on my iPhone. All right? I, got, I get my teaching through the iPhone. I have Christian friends at work that I get to talk to and fellowship with. I don't believe in the organized church. I don't need anyone. I don't need a pastor to tell me what to do. Okay? I just need God. And these, these are some of the sentiments that I came across, you know, in coaching and just other people. And just the sentiment that this is such a privatized thing. Being a Christian is a very private affair, right? It's not just me and God. In a sense, there's true. Like, all you do is need is Christ. However, as we're going to find out today, this is not a privatized thing. So let's just see if this view is correct. There's some pictures we sang about some, you know, we're soldiers. That means that we're in God's army. Jesus is the commander. We're soldiers. Army is, is made up of a group of people. Other pictures of the Bible that, that we are the kingdom of God, right? Jesus is the king. We're his subjects, a group, a community. Household, where Jesus is the owner or the master, and we're different vessels in the household, group. Temple, where Jesus is the object of worship, and each and every single one of us are certain bricks that make up the temple of God. Family, where God is the Father, right? And we're his children. We just sang about that. Group, relationship. And today, we're just going to zero in on a little bit on Christ is the head, and we're his body. We're all connected. So scripturally, what the Bible teaches, clearly it's not a privatized affair. Being a Christian is a very communal thing where we do life together. This is the beauty of being a Christian. We do this with Christ and other believers. So today is about the body of Christ and the, and, and the, the essence of what today is about. And we're going to build up to it as the sermon goes on is the, that Christ has one body with many parts with one distinct goal. All right, so let's pray and ask God to really enlighten our eyes to, to, to what the church is. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you that we get to preach on your bride, the church, your body. Father, I pray that maybe you might reset our minds and our hearts on what it means to be part of the church. Where it doesn't mean it's, part, it's a building or even just a gathering of people. But we're absolutely connected to one another like as a human body is connected, parts are connected to one another. And we're ultimately connected to you, Jesus, the head. So Father, I thank you for this time. Spirit of God, I pray you open the eyes of our heart as Paul prayed and as Pastor Victor prayed. Enlighten our eyes so that this is not just head knowledge, but this will fall deep into our hearts. We will know who we are in you and how we are to relate to one another. So thank you, Father. Thank you. I pray that your word will be preached faithfully today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So today we have 16 verses. So today won't be as much of an expository sermon where verse by verse we're, we're, we're taking apart every single word. But we're going to extract three major points, what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And just a little bit of uh, context, we're going to be at Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there. I preach at the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. So if you want to follow along in a paper copy or in your phones, which may help you, really that's my outline. That really, if you want to follow along, that's really my outline if you really want to uh, just follow along with a sermon, okay? But the, in Ephesians, there's six chapters. And the first three chapters, as we talked about, is talking about the head, the head of the church and what we have in Christ. The Bible says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him, we have security as sons and daughters. In the beloved, talking about Christ, we have riches of, 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 of heavenly inheritance, in him, in Christ, in the head, we have the surpassing greatness of his power which lives within us. In him, we have certain hope. So Paul is using three chapters to build our identities up as Christians. This is who you are. You're rich. You're filthy rich. You're royalty. You're adopted as sons and daughters. Beautiful. Beautiful. Paul is a genius he knows that he has to embed the Ephesian heart with our, their identity in Christ before he even talks about emphasizing works or doing. All right? He doesn't emphasize doing how you're supposed to live until he's established a firm foundation of who we are in Christ. And because as soon as we start telling you guys how to live without Christ, you know what that becomes? A couple things. Some things came to mind. It just becomes legalism. Legalism. Or it could become just moralism. I just want to be a nice person. I want to be a good person. It could just be pragmatism. I just want to live wise and make wise decisions in my life to set myself up as best as possible. All right? So all these things without Christ becomes just a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's not what this is about. This is about Christ ahead. And so today, we are going to transition to the therefore. All right? Since you are in Christ, you are in him. This is how you're supposed to act. All right, so keep that in mind. Our identity is in Christ. So we're going to be at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. So let's rise and, and let's read together. This is a part that's most sanctified. Right? This is literally God's word, literally God speaking to us right now. So let's follow along as the Spirit of God ministers his word to us right now. Verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to per, per, uh, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is, is himself, who all, he, also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, 
some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you, Jesus, that you make it crystal clear what the church, your church, is supposed to be about. Thank you. I pray that we will know this more today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So as I was studying and preparing for the sermon, I was in my mind, body, head, body, head. And I went back to my, you know, before I became a coach, I was studying to become a physical therapist. So I was going into my physical therapy, physiology, anatomy stuff, and trying to draw back and how does the bicep and tricep work with each other and joints, how do they, how do they create uh, leverage for us to be able to move our body parts? And I came to myself like, I didn't spend 30 years studying on this now. So what I came to, kept coming to mind was how we built teams. I mean, this is what God is talking about here. How do we build his team? I mean, I spent all my life uh, studying on how teams work and how teams are put together. And as I think about this, I realize this. As we built football teams, we built it like a body. There's a lot of parallels there. I was like, wow, this is so clear. And I believe God's given me a certain background in this to help me understand this. And hopefully this helps us to understand this even more. And um, the issue is this. Every time you build a new culture, and, uh, and God's graced me to be at two different places at the University of Southern California at the Seattle Seahawks to establish culture. The one issue that is, is, is the same, whether it's in L.A. or Seattle, is unity. Every member of the team needs to be unified. All right, cannot be splintered. That goes for any type of organization, any type of team, any type of uh, group. You have to be unified in order to be successful and to be effective. And what came to mind was a great story, which we had a great meeting that we had every single year. So I'll go back to my colleges at the University of Southern California. Every year we had recruiting and we had about 25, 30 brand new people every single year. And in this case, I mean, everyone was handpicked. We'd offer full athletic scholarships. We'd we'd, uh, visit their schools. We'd do home visits. We'd watch them on tape. We'd give them calls. We'd write them letters. We'd invite them to campus and show them around campus. We'd invite them to games. And we treated them pretty good. And when we met with them, hey, this is how we see you fitting into our team. This is how we see you highlighting your skills. You're incredible. We need you. This is how the academic opportunities you will have. This is the type of network you have with the alumni as you meet them. All these sort of, we we told them all the good stuff that that, that you would have. 
And then come August, back then, we had like, uh, not rookie, but freshman minicamp, which was like three days where the freshmen would come in three days prior to the vets, vets and they'd, we'd practice with them for three days. And imagine this meeting room. I, I could just see it right now. This is the meeting room. Uh, you had about 25, 30, some of the greatest athletes in the country, high school athletes, and they got their hats on backwards. They're wearing all kinds of different clothes. They're, they're all spread apart. Everyone's kind of into their own little cliques or all by themselves. And they're all excited. Here I am thinking, man, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty special to come here at the University of Southern California. And here comes Coach Ogeron walking up into the, uh, into the uh, front of the room. Coach Ogeron is our recruiting coordinator, one of the greatest recruiters in the country. And he goes, everybody, come up to the front two rows. Oh, okay, so they come up. Hey, take off your hats. We're in a meeting now. Hey, sit up. No slouching. Listen, we're in football team meeting now. And the first thing that he would say after all that is this, recruiting is over, all right? All those fancy meals, all those fancy uh, events, that's over. And what he would say is this, you have been handpicked. Every single one of you has been handpicked to be part of the greatest football program in the universe, all right? You're here to be part of the University of Southern California. The football program is what galvanizes the entire school. It galvanizes the whole city of L.A. You're part of this. So he'd build that up, right? But the big idea is, hey, it's not about you. It's about being part of the Trojan family. And we, he would build this up, and he said, just say, hey, be humble. You're Trojans now. Act like one. And so, in a sense, I get the feeling Paul's doing the same thing here. For three chapters, he's building up these Ephesian Christians. Look how special you are. Look how God chose you before the foundations of the earth was formed. Look how you have every spiritual blessing. Look how your sons and daughters, look how you're royalty. Look how the riches of inheritance you have. And then verse 4, does a change of gears right here. Therefore, therefore, after three chapters of that, Therefore, and I want us to listen very carefully because I think this is going to be a landmark sermon tonight, today, because this may have, you may have to reprogram perhaps what you think of the church today. So I pray that the Spirit of God has an open mind for you, an open heart to hear what God has to say, what the church is all about. This is a sermon that you may say, man, I don't know if this place is for me. All right? Or, I think for most of us, many of us, if not all of us, this is, this, you'll, you'll say in your heart, this is exactly where I need to be. Right? I think I'm so excited about this. And that's just the introduction, okay? So we're going to go into the sermon now. That was just me. That was, just, that was Rocky Seto. I'll give you a little bit of that. But right now, we're getting God now, okay? So that was just the introduction. Let's go to verse 1 here. And first point, the body of Christ. Christ has only one body. One body. There's not 30 different bodies. Just one body. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. You've been handpicked to be a Christian. I urge you, I plead with you, I exhort you to act worthy. Now, what does it mean to be worthy of the call? How is that done? How is that done? Verse 2, right, it says, with all humility. That starts it off right there. 
Humility is what allows you to walk worthy of the calling, the holy calling that we've been called to. Let me explain. Humility is at the heart of Christian character. Humility. Pride is at the heart of satanic character. Humility is about others, about the body of Christ. Pride is about, it's all about me. What do I want? What are my rights? Humility says, look to Christ. Don't look at me. Look to Christ. Pride says, look to self or look at me. I mean, since everything is from Christ, basically Paul's point is in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in, the, in Christ Jesus, you have everything. Since it's all from Christ in you, by grace you have been saved, you, not of, of yourself, but of, as a free gift. Why should you, Ephesians, why should you, Evergreen SUV, be, be prideful? We didn't earn any of this. It's all been given to us. Be humble. And it says, because you're part of something greater. Coach Ogeron's point was this. We're no longer individual superstars. Now we're part of collectively something greater than ourselves. Same thing in the Christian life. No longer are we just individual people trying to create our own kingdoms, right? Or our own universes, but we're part of something greater than ourselves. Verse 4 to 6, it says this. There is one body. That's the theme. One spirit. One calling, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There's just one team. There's just one team. And being, going back to verse 2, being humble, this is a whole progression of verse 2. Being humble allows you to be gentle with others. It allows you to be meek. Gentle meekness means power under control. Being gentle with others allows you to be patient with the one and long-suffering with others. And when you're patient with others, you're able to tolerate one another, knowing it's about the team, it's about one body. But without humility, none of that happens. Humility is a launching pad for this holy progression happening. It's not about you, Coach O said. It's not about you. It's about Christ and his body. That's what the Bible is saying. But we need to recognize there are some threats to unity. All right? Even on a football team, there are, uh, there are threats to unity. We had a saying, I think I learned this back in my junior college days, Coach Bill Fisk at Mount Sac talked about there is no I in team. You know, T-E-A-M, no I in team. But those players who are kind of bright and kind of, you know, witty says, but there's me, M-E, you know, T-E-A-M. It's like, come on, <laughs> come on. Work with us here a little bit, guys. Trying to keep it simple so we could all understand, okay? There is no I in team. You know, on a, even on a football team, pride is absolutely the enemy that takes apart the most talented units. Absolutely, pride is the enemy. Selfishness is born out of pride, self centeredness is born out of pride, narcissism is born out of pride. Pride actually develops a privatized mentality. Hey, this, this is my own world. You start, this is what I want. This is the type of music I want. This is the type of teaching I want. It doesn't matter what other people think. I just want to exercise my liberties. It doesn't matter how it affects other people. Pride is at the heart of this whole deal. So on a team, this could absolutely fragment a team. If you get 10 people like that, it absolutely destroys a team. This is what John MacArthur writes. 
Most of us admit that we tend to be self-oriented, that we see many things, first of all, in relation to ourselves. But the person who has the word of Christ abiding in him richly, the one who saturates, I like that, saturates his mind with divine wisdom and truth, will ask. Here's these four questions that this type of person will ask. How does this affect God, number one? Number two, how will it reflect on him? How does this make God look? Number three, what does he want me to do with this problem or this blessing? Christ, the head of the church, how do you want me to handle this? Number four, how can I most please and honor him in this way? You know you're saturated with God's word when you're worried about his honor, the head's honor more than anything else. So a, a unified church body knows it's part of one body. That's it. Not ten different bodies, one body. One group, one mind, one head. And if you want to have one mind, just like the, the Christians did in Acts chapter 2, you have to have the mind of Christ. You have to think like Christ. You have to be saturated, absolutely saturated with God's word. You have to love this. You have to read this like your life depends upon it, you know? That is the sanctified mind, thinking like Christ. Point number two. Pastor Victor helped me with this. He's good at this sort of thing here. The body of Christ. Christ has one body, we're building up now, with many parts. Okay, well, there's one body, but there's one, one oh, many parts. Look at verse 7 here. It says, but. Remember right before it, it says, it says one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Verse 7, that's 4, 5, and 6. Verse 7, but, hold on, hold on. There's a transition here of contrast. One body, but many parts. We're talking about diversity and uniqueness. As Pastor uh, David preached to the little ones, we all look different. We all have different gifts. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different trainings and, and, and passions and personalities. We're different. We even look different. All right, that's a beautiful thing. We're talking about diversity and uniqueness. And then look how Christ uses the very different parts of the body to bless the body. We have different spiritual gifts. Right here, verse 7, but to each one of us, grace. What does grace mean? Getting what we don't deserve. Think about it in those terms. Getting something positive that we do not deserve. We get these gifts that we don't, we, we got salvation already. He clearly established that in the first three chapters. But now we get gifts. We don't deserve these gifts. We get gifts that we don't deserve was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And what is the purpose of getting a gift? All right, receiving a gift. A gift is meant to give away. It isn't meant to hoard. The purpose of spiritual gifts is not for the self or self-glorification. It's meant to give away for others. It's about others. It's about the body. It's not about me. I need to exercise my gift of teaching and preaching to grow the body. Whatever your gift is, you do to grow the body. And it's a tremendous opportunity to demonstrate your love for one another. You serve each other this way.
these are victory gifts from God. I'm just going to give you an overview. You know, in 8, 9, uh, and 10, there's about words like ascended and descended. What does that mean? That means Jesus, from the throne of God, descended as he became a man. Incarnation, fully God, fully man, was treated like a criminal, died and was buried. How low can you go than that? He was treated like the worst of us. Ascended means he's resurrected and went back to heaven, coronated at the right throne of, uh, hand of God. By doing this, he's able to give us these gifts. It says that he led a host of captives with him, meaning he freed every single Christian in here out of slavery to sin. And not only that, he gives us gifts, right? To bless and grow the church. Verse 11 here. What do some of these gifts look like? I'm just going to explain briefly some of these. This is, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. I believe the first two, the, the, oh, verse 11 is talking about the office, the office of apostles, office of prophets, the office of evangelists, of, uh, uh, office of pastor teacher, which is the elder. And the first two, the apostles, they don't exist anymore. The office of apostleship doesn't exist anymore. These are the 12 disciples. This is Paul who wrote Ephesians. All right? The office of prophets, they don't exist anymore. But God used the office of the, the teachings of the apostles and the prophets to lay down the foundation of what we teach, the Bible. This is the work of the apostles and the prophets right here in my hand. And then what the two offices that do exist are the office of evangelists, which are like missionaries, Inagata, church planters, Kyle Shimazaki. These people exist to grow the body, to bring in the, the, the fish. And in the office of pastor teachers, best translated pastor teacher, two, one separate, one, one unique person, someone who leads and feeds, basically describing the work of an elder. All right? And so these two evangelists and pastors or elders, what is their goal? What is their goal? What is their purpose? What is their purpose? And I want to go back to Ball a little bit. Some of the challenges of in church that I discovered from being a coach to being a pastor now, there's a very clear one. As a football coach, I knew how I was doing. I knew how the, the health of the team was. How did I know? I just had to look at the score of the game. I just had to look at a record. Did we win the championship or did we not? If we won, we're doing pretty good. Clear. Easy. It's clear to the players. It's clear to the coaches. It's clear to the ownership. It's clear to everyone. This is what we want to do. We want to build the best team possible so we give our best chance to win as much as possible. Now in the church, how do you and I know if Evergreen SUV is a winning church? Think about that now. How do you know if Evergreen SUV is a winning church? Is it because, man, uh, yeah, this place looks pretty packed? Is that it? Is it, I don't know, I mean, how many people are serving? Is that it? How would you think about this now? Think about, I really want you to think about what does it mean to be part of a winning church, a faithful church? What does the head have to say, right? Everything goes back to the scriptures. Like we talked about, Christ mediates his rule through the Bible. 
What does a winning local church body look like? That's point number three. Christ has one body with many parts, with one distinct goal. What is that goal? All right? Verse 12. Let's just, go, let's just march down the scriptures and we're going to just see exactly what Christ means. What is the goal of the local church and the universal church? Verse 12. Elders, evangelists, work for the equipping of the saints. That's every Christian. We're holy because of Christ in us. For the work of service. All right? That means we feed the body. Elders feed the body, the word of God. Just like any athlete, just like any football team, we need to make sure nutrition is a part of this deal. We feed, we train also. But we also nurse injured parts. All right? Just like any team, injuries happen. How do we nurse those guys back to health? How do we nurse injured people in our church? It could be going through a trial. It could be going through some kind of sin that debilitates a member, a part of the body. These, this is the role of an elder. Why? So that you will be useful to the masters is for the work of service. And it's interesting as I, as I, as I thought back on all the teams that we've coached, the best teams are the teams basically where the players police themselves. Coaches weren't as involved and they did the work. Because the coaches need to get the players ready, and the players are the ones that played on the field. Coaches didn't do anything. We made a few adjustments. We gave some encouragement. But at the end of the day, when you cross the white line, those players, those 11 players, have to go play. So Christians are called to get into the game. As the body of Christ, if you're a Christian, you consider yourselves a follower of Christ, if you consider yourself a saint, you need to be in active ministry in exercising your gifts. This is how this works. If you're not, you're just a fan. You're not in there. You're a spectator. You need to get into the game. The Bible talks about a universal priesthood. In a sense, we're all priests ministering Christ to one another and to the lost world. So I asked you this question, what does it mean? How do we know if we're part of a winning local church at Evergreen SUV? It says to build up the body of Christ. Okay, pastor, I got that. What does that actually mean? Let's go to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, we all galvanize in truth in who Christ is, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We all know who Jesus is. Okay, great. To a mature man. Here we go. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. A mature man who's like Christ. A mature body that looks like Christ, that looks appropriate to hold this beautiful head. This is what the goal of the church is, to have a body that looks like Christ, acts like Christ, Christ-likeness. Verse 14 gives you the opposite. The, how do you know you're not part of a winning church or to have a body that's built up? Children, we're like children, immature, fooled by every window doctrine. We're constantly confused. Children are not as mature as grown men and women. We understand that. Are we biblically literate? Do we know Christ through his word? Let's go to verse 15. 
But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Clearly, the goal of a church is to become like Christ. And you may ask, well, how do you know I'm like Christ? I mean, the best thing that comes to my mind is the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read that for you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you love God? Do you love one another? Joy, do you exhibit joy in your life? True joy, a contentment, as we sang, it is well. Even in the hardest time, is there some kind of sense of peace about you? Joy, peace, patience. We talked about that. Humility, meekness leads to patience. Kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, meekness. There it is again. Self-control against such things. There is no law. So Paul gives us a, a briefer list earlier. Are we acting like this? Are we humble? Are we tolerating one another? Do we love one another? The goal is to be like Christ. The goal is to be like Christ. And then my, my question I'm going to ask for us is, how are we going to do this? How are we going to grow in each individual part to become like Christ so collectively we look like Christ? All right? Verse 15. Let's back up to verse 15, first part. But speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? Speaking the truth in love. Right here in context, speaking the truth in love is meaning having right doctrine, speaking uh, scripture to one another, teaching one another. What is Christ like? What is the church supposed to be like? Let's look to the scriptures. What does the Bible have to say? But in love, there's not a bunch of data dumping that you're giving to one another or one-upmanship where I know more Bible than you do. In love, you're trying to help your brother or sister grow in Christ-likeness. The motivation is because you love Christ ahead and you naturally love his body, the church. That's, the motive. That, that's, that's what compels you. But in order for this to happen, hear me now, this may be challenging for some of us. I'm going to say this because I love the church. I love Christ. I want to be faithful to what Christ has called me to do. There needs to be true Christian fellowship. What does that mean to have true Christian fellowship? Rocky, I hang out. We, go, we see people from the church all the time. We're part of the youth group. We serve together. We come to church. Part of the reason why we want to go one unified service so we can at least lay eyes on each other, all the body parts, right? And you may say that, Rocky, uh, yeah, I have fellowship. What is true Christian fellowship, though? What does the Bible say what true Christian fellowship? I believe the Bible teaches that these are genuine, real relationships centered in Christ. What does that mean? On a football team... We all agreed to come together because we love football and perhaps we love the team that we're on. But we love football because of that. We spurred each other on to help each other become better players, better uh, coaches. We, that was an agreement we have. There was, some, there was a genuine relationship, genuine exchange in that. But now let's, let's take it to some higher, where the stakes are higher here at the church. Why do we actually come together why do we have genuine relationships? It's because we are centered in Christ, the head, and we are here to help each other grow in Christ-likeness, whether it's teaching each other scripture, whether it's praying for one another, but I believe there's another side to it. Also, and one of the dangers to genuine Christian fellowship is this, 
It started back in the Garden of Eden where we, our fellowship was broken from God. Sin. Sin. Hear me now, brothers and sisters. Sin destroys, ravages Christian fellowship. It destroys genuine fellowship. It keeps genuine fellowship from heaven. You could get one to get this close, but not here. It's like this. It's like those magnets that you're trying to push up together. It pushes against each other. Sin keeps you from having that genuine relation, no matter how hard you want, you want it or how bad you want it. And how does God deal with that? Christ deals, that, deals with it and quite severely at times. Here are some pictures here. The vine and the branches. Another picture of the church, right? Jesus is the vine, where's the branches? The father is the gardener. I like that. Father is the gardener, and he prunes. He prunes the branches so that could, the branches could be more fruitful. All right, let's go to the next one. Family, we talked about that. The father lovingly disciplines his sons and daughters, right? We understand that. For any of us who are dads, we understand that's a necessary thing in love households the master will cleanse the vessels so that he could use it for honorable use you're not going to serve up the the christmas dinner on a dirty plate you cleanse that precious china before you serve the food in it marriage in, in ephesians chapter 5 talks about how the husband washes his bride with the washing of the word there's a whole idea of cleaning the body, in Titus 1, I believe there's, it talks about having surgery on professing believers so they will be restored to soundness. Surgery. Yeah, you cut out the cancer. I believe speaking the truth in love also entails, if there's true, genuine fellowship, entails confronting sin. Sin is like, if we're talking about the body now, I had enough anatomy to understand this. If Christ is the head, how the head communicates all our physical bodies through the nervous system, right? We understand this. In football, that's one of the most catastrophic injuries. If you hurt your spinal cord, that's, that's what we don't want. Right? We understand that. However, sin is like having your nerves severed. Were you not useful to the master? He can't use you. And nor can you feel other parts of the body anymore. The nervous system is severed. I believe that Christ calls for us how to restore such body parts in love. Christ talks about Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18, verse 15. The context of Matthew 18 is about restoration. Right before Ma uh, verse 15, Matthew 18, 15, right before that, this is about the shepherd that goes and leaves the 99 sheep and goes after that lost sheep to restore that lost sheep. Leaves everyone else and goes looking for that one sheep. That's how precious you are, my brother or sister, if you're in sin right now. That Christ will come after you and he'll use the church to come after you. He'll use friends in your life. He'll use pastors. He'll use leadership to come after you, to restore you. It's a four-step process. Let's read here just a couple verses, four, uh, 15 to 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly, the, the called out ones. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's a four-step process. The fourth step is severe. You basically do not recognize him or her as a believer anymore. You stop treating them as brother or sister, and now you're treating them as friend. You see the difference? Brother or sister is in the family. Friend is not in the family, but you evangelize. You look to minister to evangelize them to come into the fold. But this is what I also, I wrote in my leaflet for some of you who's read about this. And the best teams I've been a part of have always had a healthy locker room. The locker room is a special place. This is where the coaches aren't there. This is where the players are just by themselves. Our head coach sends out the message, and you know you got the team when the team starts talking like the head coach. You know you got the team when the assistant coaches talk, start talking like the head coach. You know you got the team when the trainers and the strength coaches and the equipment men and women are speaking like the head coach. The best players will come together in the locker room and address every single player who's not giving their full effort, or if their attitude's bad. They police themselves because they know what's on the line. We want to win. We want to feel the best team possible. We had great coaches like Coach Chris Carlisle, who's our strength coach. He probably saw the players more than the, us, the, the assistant football coach. He's there training them constantly. He's constantly reaffirming what the head coach has taught. Constantly. People like that, men like that, are invaluable. And I thought to myself, as I reflect on my two years here, why is it on a football team, I get it, it's high-stakes football, that maybe perhaps the players and the coaches took that more seriously, keeping each other accountable than here in the church. Are we okay with sin in the church? In love, speaking the truth, looking to restore one another, What this looks like is this. There's four-step process, but really a healthy church should look like step one, and that's it. Where your brother or sister comes to you and goes, yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, Charlotte and I, we're used to having fellowship with other couples where we do family, we do life together. You know, there are times where, you know, I may have been harsh with the children or Charlotte. Husband would come up to me in private, hey, man, is everything Okay. You're kind of harsh. Like, what was that about? You okay? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. We've been fighting or, yeah, I've been just wore out. You're right. Thanks so much. He restored. He won over a brother. Is that happening here right now? If you, as you're sitting here right now, can you think of those two people that I've been praying for that's been doing that for you and you've been doing it for them? Because you love Christ and you love his body so much, you want everyone to be more Christ-like. In order to do this, you have to have genuine relationships, though. You can't just come out of the streets like, hey, by the way, you're in sin. Like, what is that, right? What is that? Are you kidding me? You don't even know me. Right? So having genuine relationships allows you to actually observe the sin or the, the consistent character contrary to the sin. And something's not right. Something's not right. Something looks fishy. Something doesn't look right. Let me go talk to him or her in private. 
And secondly, you need that genuine relationship because it allows you entrance into speaking to someone's life that intimately. So you may be sitting here right now and saying, man, pastor, this is not what I signed up for. I don't want this. Well, this is what Christ calls his church to be led. This is exactly what Christ, the reason why you want me here is, if, am I going to be faithful to the text? Am I going to preach it? Are we going to execute the text? What Christ, head of the church, says, how he mediates his rule through the Bible. This is exactly what you want. Because you want to be holy. You want to be healthy so you can be effective for the master's use. You don't want to be out of balance and hampering the body. You want to contribute to the body. It allows you to be more effective. I want to just finish off here. Verse 16 here, brothers and sisters, friends. So verse 16 is talking about Christ, from whom, Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Christ has assembled every body part, right? He, he has called us to special works before the foundations of the world. He's placed every bone and organ and nervous system and, and toe and foot and, and, and ligaments and, and even, what is that called, cartilage, right where it needs to be so that when it works properly, according, let's move, read on 16, according to the proper working of each individual part, what happens when each part is working? Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is what we want. This is what we want to offer to Christ, the head of the church someday. This is the spotless bride that you trusted us with, Lord Jesus. What? In love. Each healthy part contributes to the growth of our We need one another. We need one another. If we don't have one another, we're not going to grow. We need one another for, for to exercise our gifts, to speak the truth in love and genuine fellowship. And then you might say, like, well, Rocky, I, I want this, but I I'm not close to anyone here yet. Verse 16, what does 16 teach us right now? What does verse 16 teach us? If we are working appropriately in the gifts that we have been given to serve, we work with each other. We work with each other. We work in unison with each other. Let me explain. My fingers. There's a lot of different bones in my finger here. There's one on my fingertip. There's some connective tissue that connects my fingertip to this middle part of my finger. They work well together. They know each other really well. Are you serving alongside another brother or sister? That's an easy entry. Why do you think football players are so close? Because they're on mission together constantly, for even for winning games. We're on mission for Christ. How much greater is that? That's why when the high schoolers go off to Mexicali, they come back fired up, loving each other. Hopefully that love is sustained here. And there's a genuine fellowship with one another, like as I talked about. Serve. Exercise your gifts with, alongside one another. I bet you your friendships will be born out of that relationship. That's just a guess. But verse 16 gives me a good clue that that might happen that way. Exercise your gifts. See, show what you got for, to grow the body. Just to finish up here, just to, 
We need genuine Christian fellowship in the church. That's why we try to do those Ohana uh, Sundays, which is awesome. That's why we try to do all church retreats, which is awesome. But if we're just hanging out together, that's not genuine Christian fellowship. That's just we're hanging out together, going camping together. That, that's all it is. We're going fishing together. We're going shopping together. But if you're not getting into the, you don't know what's going on in your brother and sister's hearts, that's when fellowship happens. Christ has one body with many parts with one distinct goal, Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Jesus, you're awesome, and we want to be like you. I pray that the word that was preached would stir in our hearts so that we would desire this. We will understand this. And God, I pray for two brothers or sisters, for every single one of us who consider Evergreen SUV their church home, people that know their lives, People that you know their lives and we're able to speak the truth in love, whether it's doctrine or correcting each other and encouraging each other, exhorting each other, spurring each other in love because we love you, Jesus, the head, and we love your body. So, Father, I also pray for every single one of us to discover our gifts so we can exercise those gifts to the fullest of our abilities to building up the body so that the body, the one body, will look more like you, Jesus. I pray by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, every green SUV will look more like you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is so good. In Jesus' name, amen.